Okay, well, hopefully you got a handout as you came in. Um, they're on that stand in the back. We're going through in Sunday school the um, doctrine of the church. So what does the Bible have to say about the church? And we started with big picture stuff like what is the church? And we saw that it really is um, the glorious goal of God's redemption is that he would redeem a people for himself. And these people are nothing less than his his great treasured possession. We we are the treasured possession of God. Um, Jesus loves his church so much that he was willing to die for us and to give to us his spirit. And so... Um, as the church, we're now dealing with like practical questions. What does the Bible say about how the church um, should operate? And um, we're now diving into this question of how should church government be structured? How should um, the church operate in terms of its leadership? And I hope you're going to see that this is not just sort of this obscure kind of, well, I guess... Some people have to worry about this kind of question. (laughs) But this is actually a very practical question that has big implications for um, the well-being of the people of God. Um, This is a question that um, if you're ever in a situation where you're needing to, say you've moved to a new place, you need to find a new church, this this is a question that is going to be deeply practical for you, where a lot is going to be writing on this. And one of the things we have to say on the outset is that there are true churches, in other words, churches that are preaching the true gospel, churches where there are lots of people who love the Lord Jesus Christ, who have true faith in him, um, where there are differences in how um, the church is governed. So remember, what, what are the three marks of, an, of, a, of a true church? What, if you've got a true church, what, is it, what are the three things that are going to mark that true church. The word, yep. Yep, exactly. So the word of God faithfully preached, um, the gospel is being preached. You've got the sacraments being rightly administered. So like a, a parachurch organization, for example, that's um, doing Bible studies and stuff, that's great. It's, it's not the church though, right? Um, it, it doesn't do, it ought not to be <laughs> doing baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then discipline. So when um, a church ceases to care about whether its members um, actually believe or actually are walking according to the Bible, um, then it ceases to be a true church because all of a sudden um, faith and repentance are not actually being required of people. Okay, so you can have a church that has all three of those things. It's a true church and yet has... A variety of forms of government. So one form of government right there on your sheet there is the hierarchical form. So you've got, um, for example, in the Anglican, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox Church, you've got all these different congregations, and in those individual congregations there is usually one priest who controls everything that goes on. I was just talking to a fellow who's a, a Roman Catholic, and he said, you know, we have this sort of board who helps with, like, organizing various practical things in the life of the congregation, and they can talk all they want and and blow a lot of hot air, and yet, in the end, it's the priest who says, well, this is what we're actually going to do, right? So there's the priest at the local level 
He has complete control. And then all of those priests are under bishops. And so there's a bishop who controls a diocese, a, a big, large region. And they're the ones who say, you know, okay, you, priest, you're going now over here. And I'm going to assign this person to this church. Um, and then over the, the, the bishops, sometimes this isn't true for um, all of these communions, but for example, in the Roman Catholic Church, there's the cardinals who are over really big regions. And then at the very top, there's one person, um, the pope or the archbishop of Canterbury or whatever, you, whatever they call it, who has final authority over the entire denomination. And um, that's a pretty... It's a pretty big, uh, what, do you, what do you say? Like, it's a big responsibility, but it's also, they're making big claims about that person. So um, I was just on a trip to Texas, and we, we wandered into this uh, really beautiful Roman Catholic cathedral and just kind of looking around, and it was celebrating the, um, there was a memorial celebrating the visit of John Paul II um, to this church, and his title was Vicar of Christ. In other words, the person who on earth represents the rule of Christ. Okay, so all the authority of Jesus on earth is concentrated in this one person. Okay, so that's hierarchical form of church government. All right, uh, on the complete other end is independent churches. And so these are all over the place. Um, but um, Baptist churches, most non-denominational churches, are what we call independent. And the definition of an independent church is, as you might expect, it's independent from every other church. So whereas a hierarchical church, all the churches are interconnected and it all goes up to some peak. Whereas uh, with that, uh, you know, with the independent churches, it's, they're all autonomous from each other. And so they can partner with each other. They can willingly join together. Hey, let's do a joint service or whatever. Um, they can even accept advice from other churches. And that's a good thing, right? We're going through this difficult situation. Hey, could you come and help us think this through? Could you help mediate this conflict? That's great that they would do that. But at the same time, that advice is simply advice. There is no authority higher than the local ruling authority. And that local ruling authority could just be one pastor. That's probably the most common. Or you have the one pastor who kind of is the guy who calls all the shots, right? Or it could be, and this is obviously a better thing, as I'm going to argue in a moment, you have a, a board of elders who rule jointly. But even then, that board of elders, if they all say, we're going to do this, and the congregation is like, uh, that's not biblical, then all of a sudden, what's the problem? There's no higher court of appeal. There's, no, there's nothing you can do. It's those guys uh, have the authority, and they're going to do what, what they think best. Hopefully, it's something that honors Jesus. But if it isn't, here's the problem. No higher court of appeal. Okay, so in an in independent church, each church is kind of an island unto itself. There are other churches out there, but they don't have any um, accountability to those other churches um, no, no authoritative relationship with those other churches. So any questions? This is painting with a pretty broad brush, but um, any questions about these other forms of church government? Okay, well, let me just ask you just to process this for a second. Um, 
what, what are some things that could go wrong with a hierarchical form of government? What are some liabilities of that? Yeah, Anna? Exactly, yeah. So if someone's corrupt at the top, even if it's not at the very top, right? Um, even if it's just the priest at the local level, well, now all of a sudden here's this person who has complete control of this local congregation who's no longer seeking the glory of Jesus. And we, we know the stories from church history, from the Reformation, how corrupt um, the government had become, the church government had become, um, which is part of why um, Luther was leading his reform, right? So one guy gets corrupt and um, is not removed from office, leads to all kinds of corruption going all the way down. Okay, so what about independent churches? What, what's the liability there? What, what, could, be, what could go wrong? <laughs> yeah, Emily? Good, yeah, so the local, local leaders could choose something that do not honor the Lord Jesus, right? And then what would we do, right? And did I see another hand? Yeah, Mike? Right. Yeah, so like, you know, what if, what if uh, somebody who's a bishop over a bunch of congregations does something that then affects um, a, an individual lo- local congregation, like you said, putting a woman pastor in a position there? Does that affect then the entire denomination? Um, I think the answer is yes, in the sense that if that bishop's decision isn't reversed or held accountable by whoever's holding him accountable— Right then, all of a sudden, we have this precedent, um, and and that that then establishes some a pattern, right? That could be detrimental. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that's another liability then. Um, even in a hierarchical situation, just to repeat what she's saying, you could have one section that says, oh, yeah, we're okay with, um, say, women's ordination, and then this other one that's completely against it. And so can you imagine the confusion for the people of God? Like you go from one diocese where that's okay and go to another one where it's not okay. (laughs) What are we supposed to believe? Yeah. Yeah.
Right. Yeah. It's a great point. So when even when we have like a, a loose affiliation of churches, like, um, yeah, there are lots of independent churches, for example, the Southern Baptist Convention, where the Southern Baptist Convention is this huge denomination. Um, all those churches are affiliated with each other and they share a common confession. That's great. Um, but there's huge variety in the midst of all of that. And there's also they, they also remain independent from each other. So they're, they're, they share a common confession, but there's still this independency, um, freedom from being um, held accountable to others. And, and what's that going to lead to? Well, unfortunately, we know our own hearts, right? Our tendency to drift, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and who, no one was there to like hold him back, right? Yeah. Okay. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lord willing. <laughs> mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. And I think what you're bringing out there, that fear of church power, that fear of accountability, the fear of like, well, if we're accountable to these other people, then they're going to control us. Um, that could be bad, as we've talked about. There can be corruption at the higher levels, and that compulsion could be really detrimental, right? But it could also be, as you're pointing out, for the protection of the people of God. So when you have somebody who goes off the rails and is in church leadership, well, they have to answer to somebody, right? So let's talk then about Presbyterian form of government. Um, this, again, like, are we saying that we're like somehow inherently better than these other churches that have these other forms of government? Absolutely not. In fact, it's because we know <laughs> how sinful we are that we, we are looking for uh, the right kind of accountability, an accountability um, that honors Jesus and is according to the Bible. And, and we should just remember one, one, one really important thing, right? That the Bible is sufficient for all of life. How do we live now? In this age, following the coming of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus has happened. Jesus reigns as king. You know, Hebrews 1, the Son of God, having made purification for sins, sat down at the majesty on high. Given that that reality is reality, that Jesus right now is reigning as a man on the throne of God in heaven, how then should we live? That's an obvious question, right? Like, what are the implications of this for how we should structure the church we would expect that Jesus the King would not leave us wondering, gee, I guess we'll have to make this up as we go. We should expect that he would tell us how he wants 
the church to be structured. And um, we believe that this structure is as follows. Um, the, the structure given in the Word of God is what we call Presbyterian. It's not, not a biblical word, although the word presbyter, uh, presbyteros, is, um, is a Greek word for elder. So at least it comes from a biblical word. And yet it's naming something here. Presbyterian form of government names a church structure that at least has these things. The uniqueness of Christ's kingship, and we'll talk about what that means in a moment, the plurality of leaders at every level except the highest level, Jesus, there's one king, but every, every level below that, there's a plurality of leaders leading at every level, and then an ascending system of rule. Um, so in a, say, very small Presbyterian denomination, there might just be the local sessions, the local elders, and then over them, one presbytery. But as you get bigger, you need a presbytery that you know, covers one region and then another one that covers this other region. And then both of those guys, both of those presbyteries need to be held accountable to each other. And so you have a higher level, a general assembly. So where do we get these teachings from Scripture? Are these, in fact, the teaching of Scripture? And I'm going to try to say that, that it is. First, Jesus' uniqueness as king. And this is kind of obvious, but it's really important to say that Jesus alone has all authority in heaven on earth. That's what he says. Remember when he was raised from the dead? The beginning of the Great Commission is, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Now that's an amazing statement because that means all authority. That means all political authority, all religious authority, all like family authority. It's all given to Jesus. And what that means then is... Um, Going down two points, I'll come back to the mediator part. But that all authority then comes from Jesus. Nobody can claim authority unless Jesus has delegated that authority. So Jesus says to Pontius Pilate, you would not have this authority unless it was given to you from heaven. Romans 13 says the same one. And it says it, it's the same thing. It says it even um, more forcefully. It says all authority coming must come from God. So God has the, all authority originally in himself. After all, he's the creator. He's the one who creates families and churches and states. And he then imparts that authority according to his word. And so the, the, the word is going to govern how that authority is given out. But it all resides in Jesus. And Jesus also is unique as the sole mediator between God and his people. He says... No one comes to the Father except through me. And this is really important because sometimes, particularly in the hierarchical variety of church government, um, they will basically say, no one comes to the Father except through me, the Pope, or the, um, you know, the, the various um, powerful leaders, right? So if that's the case, then we get claims like what we hear, at least in classic Roman Catholicism, where they say, unless you are in this communion, you are cut off from Christ. You cannot claim to be in Christ unless you're in this communion, and we mediate to you the sacraments and the presence of Jesus. Um, really big claim, right? And we're saying, no, uh, there is but one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. No other human being mediates God to us. So God alone gives this authority 
to Jesus to mediate his presence to his people. And we believe that Jesus also, as king, has all authority and then hands it out as he sees fit. And so if we are to claim any real church authority, this is kind of the big payoff of this, if we are to claim any real church authority, then that authority must come from him. It must be something that he delegates to us. And he needs to tell us that he's delegated. It's not just sort of like, well, this kind of makes sense, right? And so we believe, if, if, if Presbyterianism is true, we believe that we rule by divine right. What that means is that Jesus, the high king, has delegated some, not all, but some of his authority to certain officers of his church. And let's just pause for a second. What's writing on this? What are we saying if we just say, like, how, how, how would it be different if we were just saying, well, we have to rule the church somehow um, after doing a bunch of, you know, studies on healthy churches, we've come up with this as the best model for how we should structure churches. Uh, makes sense to us, seems to work pretty well. Um, and so we're going to go with this. How is that different from divine right rule? Yeah, Mike. Okay. Hmm, yeah. Okay, yeah. It's sort of like judges, right? Like um, when nobody recognizes um, any like authority from God, then it's sort of everyone doing what's right in their own eyes, right? <laughs> okay. Yeah. So there's an issue with authority there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that's another thing that's at stake, right? If, if the Bible actually is teaching us about how to structure the church, and we're not doing that, um, that's a serious, serious problem, just like what you're saying, not paying taxes, um, when God tells us to do that. I, I think the idea is, is, is clear, that like, if we just say, well, this church structure makes sense to us, then what happens when we feel like that church structure no longer is working for us, or we don't like it anymore? Well, we can just say, see you later right? But if we, if we are saying this is the way God has ordained the church to be structured, then we need to honor that and submit to that even when it's grindingly hard, right? Because we're trusting that Jesus knows what he's talking about when he structured his people. And so one of the things that's structuring the people of God is, never forget it, Jesus is the high king over all his church. All authority belongs to him. And then he gives authority to others Graciously, this is amazing, right? That the great king of the universe, the sinless son of God, wants sinful people to lead his people. And that's what we see in the next piece about this plurality of leaders at every level. Um, this is important, right? Because we are sinful. All, every church leader is a sinful person. And so 
One of the things Presbyterian is seeking, Presbyterianism is seeking to guard against is one person calling the shots. So in order for there to be a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, one of the things in our, in our book of church order that kind of um, makes this, this biblical principle a rule is the idea that you cannot have a church where there's only one elder or one pastor. It may be a super small church. Okay, they don't have a pastor. Say so there's only one elder there and they don't have a pastor. What then? Well, then that, the presbytery gives to that church what they call a ministerial advisor. Or they can even supplement the session with elders from other churches who then come and rule jointly with that one elder who belongs to that congregation. And if, for example, there's a you know, meeting of the elders, what we call a session meeting, and only one person shows up, everybody else is sick or whatever, that one person cannot make any decisions on their own. No session meeting that night, right? What, what has to happen? There has to be a plurality of people. And where are we getting this from Scripture? Well, for one thing, it's just the language of Scripture. If you go through and you look at all the places where church leaders are addressed, it's always using the plural. Obey your leaders, not leader, your leaders, and submit to them. Acts 14.23, they appointed elders for them, elders, plural, in every church. Jesus sends out his disciples in groups of two. And then there's this point about, you know, the word elder is the same thing as overseer. Um, the, the point being that there aren't like two, there aren't like different levels of leader. So um, the word overseer is translated bishop in some translations. And so some people want to say, okay, well, there's the bishops who are over the lower elders. And this is actually an idea that goes all the way back to the very early church. They were starting to do this, this hierarchical kind of thing. But if you actually read Acts 20 or Titus 1, you'll realize that the word presbyteros, elder, and the word episkopos, overseer, are being used interchangeably. So who, what's an elder? He's an overseer. What's an overseer? He's an elder. There's, there's one, one class of leader. And there isn't sort of like multiple kinds. Well, there's the cardinals over the bishops, over the, the priests or whatever. Now, there's one class, one basic class of leader. And that one basic class, um, they're co-equals with each other. So this is really important. And I didn't include it on the handout here, but it's really important for the sake of um, if you have one person calling the shots, then all of a sudden we're not really safeguarding the kingship, the unique kingship of Jesus. He's the only one who has that unique power to say, this is what it's going to be like. This is what we're going to do. Yeah. Well, that's a great point. And, and that's part of why I said um, class of rulers. So um, deacons are, are not like a ruling body of officers. Um, there's leadership, surely, that they're doing in terms of leading us in, in, um, in service. But in terms of the rule of the church, um, you know, wielding the keys of the kingdom, um, binding and loosing, you know, who shall be a member, who shall not, um, the sacraments, all of that, um, there's basically one class, the elder. And then within, within the elder, there are two different kinds. We'll talk about this, um, I think, two weeks from now, I'm trying to remember, uh, where where we'll talk about how within the one body of elder, there is, you know, a teaching elder like myself and then a ruling elder uh, based on differences of gifting and 
and whatnot. But um, that, that's the basic point I'm trying to say. Yeah, but you're right. There are multiple church officers, um, deacon and elder. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. No, that's that's exactly right. Yeah, they, the the very beginning of the diaconate was recognizing these these particular people need to be freed up to do their rule of of shepherding and leading. Yeah, Betty. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, great point. Like, so what about the Old Testament? How were they structured? How did God, you know, arrange that? And surely there was one king over all Israel, David, right, who was ruling singly. Um, but there, there are also passages that speak of multiple elders of the congregation um, and, or, yeah, distributed throughout Israel. Um, so I think that one, one person leading, um, particularly the, the uh, you know, the king, or also you could also, you could also point to the high priest, right? Um, there's one person at the top. That one person is picturing to us Jesus, right? He is the son of David. He is the true son. Uh, he, he is the true um, high priest of our confession. So, um, yeah, granted, in the Old Testament, there were times where there was one person calling the shots who was a sinful person. But I don't think that undermines what we're trying to say in terms of the uniqueness of Jesus. Yeah, Chuck? <laughs> that's right, yeah. Yeah, this, that's right. The, Jethro's saying, yeah, there's too much for you to do, um, Moses, so you need to distribute that rule um, jointly throughout Israel. Yes. Yeah, and, and that leads us actually to the ascending system of rule where churches are holding each other accountable. So just as Israel was one nation and they, they, um, there was accountability going all the way on up to the top, so also there is one church. And remember, Jesus praying. And we, talked, we spent a good bit of time in a couple weeks back talking about the unity of the church wouldn't it make sense if the church is unified that we wouldn't be a bunch of little islands? And that is, in fact, what we find in, um, in the scriptures. So here, here's some kind of proto-examples, early presbyteries. The churches in Jerusalem and Antioch. Those are massive. Antioch, in particular, is a massive city in the ancient world. They are huge, and we even have lists of many, many um, officers in the church in Antioch. And yet they're con still considered one church. I want to read a quote to you. Um, William Cunningham, uh, and this man, uh, Mark Jones, is sort of summarizing his work. Um, William Cunningham notes that the church in Jerusalem could not have met together in the same place. There were no basketball arenas for sale then. And therefore, they met in several places. So you have in Jerusalem or Antioch. They're meeting in separate places. And yet, Cunningham says, these distinct co congregations are still spoken of repeatedly as the church, which was at Jerusalem. And this church, singular, consisting of several congregations, is represented as being under the superintendence of one united body of apostles and presbyters, or elders. 
Same thing happening in Acts 9.31 where the singular word church refers to the church in all Judea or the church in all Galilee or the church in all Samaria. You get what the, the argument is saying? When, you look at the, when, they, when the Bible's looking at the church in, Ju- in Jerusalem, do they refer to it as the churches in Jerusalem, all these separate congregations? Because they're all meeting separately, right? Meeting probably in people's homes. Maybe not more than like 15, 20 people based on how much space there was, right? Does it refer to them as the churches of Jerusalem? No, it says the church in Jerusalem. And at times, that church, that one church, for example, in Antioch, sends out missionaries. They jointly meet together and say, Paul and Barnabas, you guys, go on your mission. So you have these churches all yet considered one church, congregations all united as one. And of course, the the flagship example of this is in Acts 15. This is where they're trying to make sense of what are we supposed to do with all the Gentiles? (laughs) Are they they really um, part of the, of the people of God as Gentiles, or do we need to, um, do we need to enforce circumcision? Do we need to make them keep the entire law of Moses? Well, what did they decide to do? Well, they didn't just have some apostle get up and say, well, I say by divine inspiration that this is what we're going to do. No, God in his wisdom didn't <clears throat> just sort of give this immediate inspiration. Instead, he, he gave them He gave them this form of deciding this important question. In a sense, the inspiration was already given by Peter's preaching in Acts 10 and whatnot. But what what happened? There was a dispute, and so all the churches send representatives, elders, and in this case it was apostles because it's the very beginning, and they all joined together, and it was decided, the decision was finally decided by all those present. It seemed good, it says, Acts 15, 6, to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to then send forth this letter that explained, look, you need to welcome Gentiles as Gentiles and not force them to do all of these different um, old covenant laws. Uh, We are in the new covenant now. So notice even the proceedings that went on there. If if you recall what happens in Acts 15, There are speeches being made by different people, testimonies being given. And again, uh, Mark Jones writes, why did the apostles even choose to discuss the matter if they received supernatural guidance on it? Why did the apostles debate the matter upon grounds that are derived once from God's providential dealings and from statements contained in the Old Testament scriptures? Remember how James cites uh, Amos 9, right? And he's arguing this. Why are they doing that? It's because they're living out and exemplifying to us how we're supposed to make doctrinal decisions when we have difficult issues that we're facing. That it doesn't just have to be decided at the local level. That we can refer it up to the presbytery or even higher than that, the General Assembly, and that joining together all the ministers and elders, or at least representatives of all the ministers and elders can join together to safeguard the teaching of the church So Donald McLeod says this, from the very beginning, the church had a unified collegial leadership extending to all its congregations. That leadership was directly involved and consulted at every critical point in the development of the emerging people of God, the reception of the Samaritan church, Peter's mission to Cornelius, and Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. In all those cases, the church jointly 
was making a decision. And so he says this, the idea of a totally isolated, of totally isolated, fully autonomous churches is wholly alien to the New Testament. So are you starting to see that like this idea of mutual accountability between churches is a deeply biblical idea? There's plenty of examples of it. It's not just Acts 15. And that, that this is really important for us safeguarding the, the unity of the body and the purity of the body. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. And there are a couple other examples of this. So like um, he says to Titus, um, appoint elders in every church, right? And it seems to be this unilateral thing that he's doing, although it's not entirely clear. Um, I, I think one of the things that's important to say, and, and, and just for the recording, she's, she's mentioning also the Apostle Paul where times where he says, I declare this, right? It's important to remember that there are so many of these letters that Paul's writing where he has co-authors that he is mentioning, right? So he's speaking in his apostolic capacity, but he's joining multiple other people with him and saying, this letter's coming from us, right? Uh, we were with you as nursing mothers, First Thessalonians. Um, so I think that there's an impulse towards that plurality that we're talking about here, even while it seems like in the foundational period, particularly when you have um, new churches being planted and there's only one person on the ground, the Apostle Paul, right? Um, sometimes he's making those one-off decisions, apparently as a acting as a, an apostle. And even to this day, there are times where, um, you know, we're sending out evangelists to far-off countries that don't have any church. Um, and there are times, we're always trying to send out multiple people, but sometimes practically it can't happen. And so sometimes practically speaking, there really is one guy on the ground where we simply have to allow that one person to make decisions. And of course, he's always reporting upwards, right? He's always being held accountable for whatever his on-the-ground, one-off decisions are. Um, so there are some of these kind of borderline situations, like what you're describing. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Great point. Yeah. Yeah, there's going to be uniquenesses there in the early church. Um, that's a great example, too. Well, the early church met in homes, and so therefore that's the only biblical place to meet in homes, right? Uh, yeah, so, but we, we do have to be careful, right, um, how we understand discontinuity and continuity with the early church. Um, and some of these things are, are tricky. Um, let me just press on just a little bit more, and then we can maybe discuss a few more matters here. I just want to emphasize this, that Presbyterianism, I believe it's biblical, and I hope you, you've seen the, the biblical and theological arguments for it. And I hope you, you see that these aren't just sort of like, here are just a few key texts. This is also emerging from what we talked about at the very beginning. When we were talking about what is the church. We are one unified body of Jesus Christ. Right? So we should expect that the churches will 
be connected, just like our body parts are connected, right? We don't have like a bunch of dis disconnected fragments <laughs> that comprise our bodies. No, our bodies are all organically one. And so we should expect that there would be this unity like we're seeing in Presbyterianism. Uh, but I want to make sure I say this, that it's necessary for the well-being of the church. is isn't necessary to be a church. Um, again, the, what is a church? A place where there's the sacraments, discipline, and good preaching of the word. Um, yeah, but it is necessary for the well-being of the church. Presbyterianism helps the church to stay healthy. Here's some ways it helps us to stay healthy. It provides mutual accountability. Mark Jones again writes this, particular congregations need the protection of other congregations, just as pastors need the protection and sometimes the discipline of other pastors. So I want you to think about this. You are being protected by your presbytery. Um, I'll never forget when I was an intern, um, the, the man who was mentoring me, he pointed at the pulpit and he says, that pulpit is the presbytery's pulpit. And I thought it was a striking statement because I was thinking to myself, well, congregations call pastors, right? Um, elders have to approve the guy that they put before the congregation. Surely, surely you could say it's the elders or the congregation's pulpit. Well, ultimately, no. Um, you know, the Presbytery is not going to put somebody up there that is, you know, uh, not suitable for you, um, that, it, that there's a reason why the congregation votes and says, we want to call this person. But if the presbytery says no, if the presbytery says, this guy is not suitable as a minister of the gospel, then he can't get up there. And this is really, really good, right? Um, you, have, you have situations where a church has one pastor who's been leading his congregation in one particular direction. He's, you know, reformed and, and everything. He's reformed in his understanding of God alone is the, the author of our salvation, right? Teaching all that good, good uh, biblical doctrine. And all of a sudden, here comes this person who's Arminian, who, who says, no, you, you, God doesn't choose you, you choose God. And now all of a sudden, you know, people are really confused, right? The presbytery is there to protect you, to protect you from ungodly teaching. Um, in, the abundance, in an abundance of counselors, there is wisdom and safety. This is getting at the plurality thing again. I can't tell you how many times I've had this really awesome idea. And then I bring it to the elders, and they're like, uh, what about this, this, and this? I'm like, ooh, good point. <laughs> right? I'm like, I'm really thankful for you guys. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad we talked about this before we went and told everybody. You know? <laughs> um, in the abundance of counselors, there's wisdom and safety. How many times have there been at Presbytery a moment where, you know, even a couple of churches, all these um, elders together are saying, we should do this, but then it's a really weighty and difficult thing, and the, all the presbyters together say, uh, no. Again, multiple, the more counselors you get, the more wisdom and the greater the safety. And, of course, greater pastoral, pastoral care for the flock. Um, if there was only one shepherd and there weren't multiple shepherds, how much worse off would the congregation be? Um, this is, I think, one of the great dangers of saying, um, oh, I'm sick in the hospital. I've got to have the pastor. He's the one who is, like, the, the one person who can really give grace to me. Well, unfortunately, that's the way, you know, these hierarchical 
churches are thinking, right? Where the, the one person has this vested power of mediating Christ to people. Well, it's, I, I am just as much a shepherd of this church as the elders, the other elders, right? So we're all caring for you. And you're going to get so much greater care when you have multiple shepherds caring for the flock. So Presbyterianism is not necessary for the being of a church, but it sure helps with the well-being of a church. Imagine a situation like this, where a pastor has gone off the rails. He's, he's started abusing his power. He started doing stuff that really hurts the flock. And the flock is like, help. And the pastor, there's nothing they can do. He has all the power. How awesome is it that in that situation, in our, in our communion, they can, you can first go to the local level, say, please help, don't do that. And then the local level, let's say they don't listen. Let's say all the elders are just, you know, partisans. They're all going for the, the, the minister and nobody can touch this guy. Well, then the, the member can say, appeal to the presbytery and say, please hear my case. And when that case is heard, it's not just going to be, oh, these, these leaders are assumed guilty. No, they'll get to get, share their side too. And there'll be impartial people who are qualified and who care about the church of Jesus, hearing both sides and then rendering a judgment. And then even presbyteries can err. Even presbyteries can be, can be partisan towards a particular minister and this minister has way too much charisma and influence. Well, then you can kick it all the way up to the general assembly and now you've got people who don't even know this guy and who can hear the case once more and render judgment. What a wonderful gift and protection. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so another piece of this in terms of consistency of teaching is having a very robust confession. And so the fact that our Westminster Confession of Faith really is very precise about a lot of details is helpful for keeping a uh, consistency of teaching across the denomination. Well, let me just share real quick what each level does, just how we've worked out these principles in practice in the OPC. I think there's, there's considerable wiggle room on these things. Um, you'll, you'll see different things in different denominations. But um, at the local level, what's happening? The local level is receiving and disciplining members, deciding, okay, we're going to receive this person's profession of faith as a credible profession. Um, the local session enacts the ministry of the word and sacraments, so we're deciding important decisions about, okay, when are we having worship? Um, what special evangelism are we going to do? Um, how are we going to disciple our youth? All of that's being done at the local level. We're ordaining elders and deacons, and so those are officers of the local church. And then presbytery ordains and disciplines ministers. So if you're going to be a minister, you have to have people holding you accountable for your teaching. And on the local level, the elders are doing this. So whenever I'm teaching here or preaching, one of the responsibilities of the elders are like making sure that guy's teaching you the word of God, right? But then the presbytery also 
is concerned for this, and they examine people very rigorously before they even let them um, become a minister. Um, so many exams. <laughs> um, and the importance of the teaching of the word is, is, requires this. Then they judge on complaints that are against sessions. Um, again, trying to preserve peace and unity in the local, local church. They resolve doctrinal questions. They encourage church planting. They recognize or dissolve congregations. All those things are things that a presbytery does, um, a regional church. Our presbytery reaches from Indiana to Western PA down to Kentucky and um, West Virginia, so it's pretty big. And then the General Assembly handles everything that presbyteries can't resolve. They also organize or dissolve presbyteries when sometimes a presbytery grows and needs to do a little cell division. Um, that's something a General Assembly would oversee. And then joint ventures like missions. So when we give for our thank offering, right, that's enabling us to do things like foreign missions or home missions like Pastor Montgomery is helping to lead now. He's serving the General Assembly of our church, helping to organize the church planning efforts. So we're all working together and pooling resources. Yeah. Ah, yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, recognizing churches of like faith and practice. So we're all we're striving towards unity, right? And the ideal of unity would be organically one denomination, right? But even before we get that point, to that point, we can still recognize other churches like our brothers in the PCA as having the same confession of faith, the same basic commitments as us, and we can recognize, hey, this is a church that we have very close fellowship with. Um, and that helps us to work together in things like missions. Um, how nice is it that we don't have to reinvent the wheel when it comes to planning a church, right? We have people who are like doing this all the time, helping to coach those who are doing it for the first time, right? So a few applications here, and then I hopefully we'll have a few minutes for questions. First is, if you're ever in the place where you're choosing, you know, trying to figure out where to go to church, please be very careful. Please do not entrust yourself to a church where only one person calls all the shots. That's just asking for a recipe. It's a recipe for danger and problem, right? If it's the one person calling the shots is a wonderful, godly person, well, it's great as long as they stay healthy, right? But it's, what happens when people get lots of influence and power? They can go off the rails. Beware of entrusting yourself to a church where the church accepts no authority or accountability from other churches. At that point, it's like, I, you really are hoping that church is going to do the right thing because there's no court of appeal above it. Beware also that you can't put your hope in Presbyterianism. Even when a church is Presbyterian in structure, it can still have this kind of cult worship thing going on. And this happens even in the OPC, Right? We have to be always willing to say that leader could be wrong. He's, he's not infallible. Um, and we always need to have a culture of like, it's okay to challenge the leader based on what the word says. So beware of that. And notice too, that if we're going to work together and we're gonna have rule by plurality, that's gonna take way more time than somebody just calling the shots. Right, someone calling the shots says, oh, I think we should do this. People working together, could mean hours of debate on the floor of Presbytery. And so we say the gears of Presbyterianism turn slowly. Try to see that as a good thing. <laughs> Sometimes it's like, oh man, guys, do we really have to debate this? <laughs> but understand that this is part of what it takes to work together. 
use the courts of the church to avoid dis- division. Instead of gossiping and saying, oh man, I wish they didn't choose that, I wish they didn't do that, well, talk to the, the, the people who actually have the power to change it. Um, if leaders act wrongly and they won't listen, you can actually now resolve that um, by asking other leaders to step in who will actually have authority. And then finally this, do you realize that we are deeply one with the rest of the OPC? You are a member of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. You are one with every other OPC member and church. We are one church together. And Lord willing, there will be a day when we'll all be one church with every believer. We're looking forward to that. And in a sense, we already are one in the spirit with every other Christian. Um, so any, any final thoughts or questions as we think about this? Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. There are Presbyterian churches who are Presbyterian government and who have gone completely apostate. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, in the 1920s and 1930s, the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America was ordaining people who didn't believe the Bible, didn't believe the virgin birth, didn't believe the resurrection. So that can happen in Presbyterianism, right? So this is helpful, but it's not a guarantee. And like you said, we really need to be praying. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's an element of democracy in the sense that the church, the keys of the kingdom have been given to the church. The spirit's been given democrati- you know, the, the democratization of the gifts of the spirit, right? And then those, those gifts are then exercised um, by, by leaders, but leaders in a plurality. Yeah. To an extent, there's actually more protection than that, than 51% of the people going off the rails. That means the denomination goes off the rails. Because if you have good elders and ministers, then they can say no. So, like, let's say the, the, you know, the congregation um, is very weak and immature, and they're putting forward somebody as an elder or a minister that is not believing the right things, not living for Christ. The elders and pastors can say, we're not going to let this guy go any further in the training process. We're not even going to let them stand for election, right? So there are protections, um, that it isn't just purely kind of mob rule. <laughs> um, and that's a good thing. And that's, again, why it's so important who is made an elder or a minister. So much um, in terms of the life of the church that is writing on that. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for um, how you have taken the throne and then as our great king have distributed your rule among your people. And we thank you that in the scriptures we discover a pattern for this rule, a pattern that protects your people, a pattern that um, continues to help your church stay on the straight and narrow, um, teaching what is right, holding fast to the truth. Lord, we know that we can't put our, our hope in any structures, and yet at the same time we know that these are there by your good wisdom for our good. And so we pray that you would help us to live in accordance with this, that we would submit in the Lord to each other and to the structures you have put in place. 
And that, Lord, you would help us to continue to be steadfast in our commitment to the truth. That you would cause good rulers to be formed in our, um, in our denomination. Um, that, Lord, you would protect us from poor decisions. And that, Lord, um, you would get the glory as more and more people are brought into your people and protected by the shepherds you've appointed. And we pray this in Jesus' name.